This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Lots of things going on in federal politics today. So you may have missed this story from the last couple of days because it has been such a busy week on that front. But the federal Green Party has put forward their ideas on gun control in the country. And they are calling for a nationwide ban on semi-automatic rifles and all handguns. And that is something that they are going to be talking more about in the upcoming election campaign. So we're wondering for our hot question of the day today, we are asking you, would you support a move? Would you support a nationwide ban on all semi-automatic rifles and all handguns? Do you say, yeah, that is for safety? Or do you think, no, that's going too far? Let us know how you feel about this. You can go to Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW to cast your vote on this. Uh, you can email me, Simi at CKNW.com or use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Would you support a ban on all semi-automatic rifles and all handguns? How do you feel about that? Let me know. We'll be talking more about it a little bit later in the show. Wood splitters, fancy suits, trips abroad. I mean, these are all things that officers of the legislature have been under fire for spending money on in the last year. How many times did we talk about this? These are issues that had been raised by the Speaker of the Legislature, Daryl Pluckus, and his Chief of Staff, Alan Mullen. They said there was all this unnecessary travel. It was too extravagant that there should be more oversight. Well, all of that makes this next story very interesting because now comes word that the chief of staff to Daryl Pluckus, Alan Mullen, spent more than $13,000 in taxpayer money to travel to 10 different provincial capitals and state legislatures to talk about security at those buildings. But why is that his job? Isn't that the job of the Sergeant of Arms at the legislature? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by BC Legislature online reporter for Global News, Richard Zussman. Hello, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, so why is it Alan Mullen's job to go around and do this? Yeah, so Alan Mullen and Speaker Daryl Plekis have been doing a review about the way that things operate at the BC legislature. And one of the responsibilities ultimately of the speaker is security of the building. So a decision was made by their office that Mullen was going to go on the road and meet face to face with people and have a look at how things are done in other jurisdictions. Uh, so ultimately, that's how Plekis argued that it was legitimate for Alan Mullen to go on this trip. Okay, but isn't it the job of the Sergeant of Arms to deal with security at the legislature? It is, but the Speaker is the boss of the Sergeant of Arms. And as you know, the Sergeant of Arms is currently on paid administrative leave. Uh, he is under investigation. It is Gary Lenz. Uh, he was cleared of all wrongdoing by Beverly McLaughlin in the report that was done that ultimately led to the retirement of Clerk Craig James. There is now multiple investigations into Lenz. So while this is happening, there is an acting Sergeant at Arms uh, but there is some overlap in terms of what the responsibilities are of the sergeant at arms. And the reason the speaker's office says they're doing this, Simi, is to review the position of sergeant at arms. Some jurisdictions, and I called to all 10 jurisdictions that Mullen visited, and we'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things I heard from Oregon is the way it works there is there's an, a capital police force that is uh, run by police that um, operates in charge of security. The sergeant arms basically is a ceremonial role in charge of education about the way the Capitol building works. Huh. So uh, this may be something the speaker's office is looking at as a potential uh, solution to try to neuter the sergeant arms uh, job here in BC. Right. But so they just decided on their own th that this is what they were going to do. Can they do this or do they not? <laughs> like, can, doesn't Lampsey have to, the committee have to decide kind of what things they look after? 
they can do it, Sivy, and I think that's what has the public concerned. Yeah, uh, exactly. The Legislative Assembly Management Committee had questions about this trip uh, for Speaker Daryl Plekis, and he said basically Alan's on his way already and he's doing it. And at the time, uh, Alan Mullen had no itineraries, no agendas, uh, no list of meetings. Uh, I've been told that uh, he did not have meetings with the Sergeant Arms or Speaker in Alberta or Saskatchewan. I'm waiting to hear back from Ontario, but I've also heard that he didn't have a meeting in Ontario as well. So it begs the question, what was he doing yeah. in those places? I have spoken to people he met with in Minnesota, Montana, Washington, and Oregon. They all described the meetings. Some of them were half-day meetings. Some of them were even shorter. So the question is, what was he doing uh, during the other times on this trip? I've also found out that he was traveling with someone who he described on the trip as a contractor for the speaker's office. You know, that was not a thing that was approved by Lampsey. It was unclear why he needs someone to travel with him. Mullen has told me it was he at times had a photographer with him and it didn't what? lead to any additional costs. But the people in those meetings told me that person was there to take notes. And so the question is, you know, how did this person travel? Were they traveling with Mullen? Where did they stay? Were they staying in the same hotel? Who pays for that? Who pays for the meals? The report is expected to be out in September. And no doubt there are a lot of questions. But Mullen and Plekis did a lot of very good work in terms of finding misspending at the legislature. But yes. one of the things they pointed out was that uh, criticisms around James and Lens traveling with family or using on the business trips, having personal time paid for by the taxpayer. And I think there's legitimate questions about whether Mullen did the exactly same thing, maybe to a different scale. But this trip was originally budgeted for $10,000. It came in at $13,000. I'm thinking, you know, if you weren't able to get visits in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario, why not just do a shortened American tour and do Idaho and Washington and Oregon, make it a shorter trip and less expense to taxpayer and still get, if you believe it's important to see best uh, practices at other operations, maybe that would have been the best way to do things. Right. But uh, oh, I'm a little dumbfounded by the not going to Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ontario because that you're comparing apples to apples. Those are Canadian right. provincial capitals. You want to see how Canadians do this. Is is a is it a fair comparison to say we're going to look at what they do in in Washington State and Montana and Wyoming? And I think part of the challenge was that potentially Mullen did not call early enough in advance, and the people he wanted to meet with were unavailable, or those people decided they didn't want to meet with Alan Mullen. Clearly, this story has received national attention, and in talking to people on both sides of the border for this story, those on the Canadian side knew who Alan Mullen was, knew what had been going on here at the BC legislature, whereas those on the other side of the border had no idea and had been filled in a little bit when Alan was there and I filled in some more of the gaps, but that may have had something to do with it as well. And if you don't have actual meetings planned, then why go there? We're going to have to wait to see the report. Alan Mullen has been... Um, not particularly open with information over the last few days on this, but he does say he's going to provide everything in September and the report will be there and he'll answer all the questions in September. Uh, and we will see then what he did in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and Ontario yeah. in that report. But for now, based on my reporting, we know he did not meet with the Sergeant Arms and Speaker in Alberta. We know he did not meet with the Sergeant Arms in Saskatchewan and Ontario. I'm waiting to hear back from. So I guess what I'm wondering too is, does he see the irony? In this, you know, <laughs> like the comparisons that we're talking about here versus the issues that he brought up in the last year, does he not see where this could get mis? construed and that there would be questions about this. I had a good conversation with Dermot Travis from Integrity BC yesterday about this. And, and part of that was on the news hour last night. And he said two interesting things. First, the speaker needs to acknowledge that Alan Mullen is a lightning rod. That, you know, everything mm -hmm. he does is now going to be scrutinized because of how things have unfolded over the last year. And the Speaker's office needs to be aware that the optics, as you mentioned, do not look good in something like this. And they should be, you know, maybe this trip is valuable, Simi. Yeah. But why not take it next year? And like, let the investigations work themselves out this year and, and let this get behind us and then we can move on. And the other is a suggestion that Every trip done by an official at the legislature, someone who gets paid for by taxpayers to work here at the BC legislature, should be signed off on by either Lampsey or a committee saying, 
This is where I'm going. Yeah. Here are the agendas. This is why I'm going. Here are the meetings. It's standard protocol uh, for, I think, the Government Employees Union is what uh, Travis mentioned yesterday. And the same practice should be that of the clerk, of the sergeant arms, of the speaker, of the chief of staff to the speaker. I think there is huge value in traveling and seeing what other jurisdictions sure. do. But we need to have a way to provide accountability to the taxpayer, especially from an office that has been you know, going after people for not being accountable to the taxpayer. And also, did we not see in the McLaughlin report and in other reports that the previous administration, the clerk, the sergeant at arms, had in the last few years gone down to some of these states and supposedly had some of these discussions? Everything seems to always be about security at the legislature. Right. So there have been these meetings. Uh, I forget what the organization is called, but I think it's encompasses California, Oregon, Washington, right. D.C., sort of Pacific um, legislatures. And they meet around earthquake preparedness, around safety and security. And, and again, there was huge criticism in those reports around what they did on those trips. You know, there was a criticism that uh, Craig James went to Safeco, the base or now T-Mobile mobile park in Seattle to see a baseball right. game in order to prepare for earthquakes in a big venue or something something and there was a uh, whale watching trip that was also heavily criticized but yeah there have been conversations and meetings and relationships built and the other question is you know we have technology now where you have cameras on every cell phone and why not have someone in washington your counterpart walk around and show you how things work there yeah I, again and- i think there's value in visiting places but i think there's other ways if you really are really cautious around saving the taxpayer money there's other ways to do it also what are the security concerns if legislature security is such a huge issue, has something brought that up? Like, what yeah, is, have I, I we not done this structure. in a long time? Yeah. I think part of it is, is yeah, maybe we're up for a review, but it's also the structure, right? There is huge criticism that the sergeant at arms office had too much power. And that came up from whistleblowers and was raised in the Plekis report. And maybe it's time to consider taking uh, some of the power out of the sergeant at arms office. And, and all these concerns stem from the allegations brought forward in the Plekis report. And I, and that's why we have the timing now in terms of Mullen trying to address those concerns that were raised in the report. Okay. So then when do you expect to maybe find out a little bit more information. So mid-September, we will get the report, but uh, I will keep working on it until we get to that point because there are, you know, I'm concerned about um, what happened in those stops in Canada and I'm concerned about who this individual was that was traveling with Mullen and uh, was it an appropriate expense was there someone else needed to be on that trip? And I think Mullen will speak for himself and justify all of this, but I think we will hopefully find out those details soon. Uh, He, we did exchange some messages, uh, Mullen and I, and, and he said that, you know, we will all understand that everything's above board and there are no concerns uh, when he speaks to it. And, and I think the public deserves some of those answers as well. All right. We will wait for that. Richard, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That's Richard Justman, our BC Legislature online reporter for Global News. You know, when it comes to fighting gangs, one of the biggest issues has been prevent kids from joining. Keep those kids busy. Uh, talk to them. Tell them about this problem. Deprive the gangs of people. That's how we will fight back. It turns out the gangs themselves are learning to adapt. So kind of a scary trend coming out of Abbotsford that we heard about this morning. Very disturbing. To talk more about that now, we're joined by Sergeant Judy Bird of the Abbotsford Police Department. Sergeant Bird, thank you for joining us. Good morning. This does sound like something new. What's been happening? Well, we have no... I mean, gangs, uh, they adapt and they they evolve um, and they have different tricks of uh, manipulating and recruiting young people. Uh, but we've noticed a real increase in them approaching young people who are end drivers as well as international students. So what we notice is that they're actually dr- very brash behavior. They're driving up to other vehicles, uh, especially young people, um, showing them money, showing them, shall we say bling and, um, basically offering them a job. Really? So saying, hey, do you want to make a quick buck? Here's the money. Here's what you have to do. And yeah. these, these kids are saying yes? Very, I mean, young people are susceptible to that very quick lure of quick money. Quick money, fancy items. Um, yeah. What, so what do the gangs get out of that? By using these kids and their cars and the end drivers, what's in it for the gangs? Well, using a young person is... Um, uh, you know, most of these young people don't have criminal records. 
they're new drivers, so they're probably not driving their own vehicle. They're probably either borrowing um, a family member's vehicle or they're borrowing somebody else's vehicle. And, you know, there is a bit of a misconception that um, if you're driving mom and dad's vehicle or somebody else's vehicle, then the police can't seize that vehicle or uh, refer it uh, for consideration to proceeds of crime. And that is false. So we think it's really important for parents and everyone to know that if you are going to be lending your vehicle out, to number one, know who you're lending it out to, number two, uh, know what they're doing with that vehicle, <clears throat> and number three, know that um, just like impaired driving, is that if you're involved with crime with your vehicle, it may be seized by police and it will be pushed uh, and it may be pushed forward for consideration for to be seized and forfeited by civil forfeiture. Now, has that happened in Abbotsford? Uh, it ha- we are we have practiced this before, and we will continue to practice it, um, even with other items such as property, jewelry, as well as vehicles. And have there been any busts recently where you've seen this problem pop up? So actually, two days ago, our uh, gang crime unit did arrest uh, three young men, ages uh, 18 and 19, who were involved with drug trafficking in Abbotsford, who we also believe are associated to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. Um, these young people had a significant m- amount of Canadian currency, prepackaged uh, doses of what we believe to be fentanyl and crack cocaine, and cell phones. And within that, they were also driving a 2016 Jeep Wrangler that did not belong to them, and we have seized that vehicle. Okay, so it belonged to one of their parents. Yes. And that, that just amazes me at how adaptable, Sergeant Bird, some of these gangs are because they don't care. They're, they're going to lose nothing. Does that show how naive some young people still are when it comes to gangs? Well, the gangs, you know, a young person to a gang is disposable. Um, you know, the loyalties are loose. And, uh, you know, having a young person get arrested, well, they'll just find another young person. And, and we're talking young people of all... Um, ethnic backgrounds, as well as all family type dynamics. So, you know, no, it is very important for parents to talk to young people with respects to the risks of gangs. No, and like you guys have said before, you know, know where your children are going, know what they're doing. Uh, Parenting's tough. We're we're not saying that it's not, but, you know, it's very important for people to realize it's not just losing a vehicle. You know, we can, there is example over and over and over again, um, that over the past few years, uh, many of our young people have been shot and killed. And we're, we're losing our young people to, to bling and the lure of gangs. Yeah, is the message not getting through then, Sergeant Bird? Because, like, you know, we've been talking about this for, well, years now, especially to parents and telling them, uh, to kids going into the schools. I know Abbotsford has many programs that does yeah. that. Where's the disconnect here? Um, I think as a young person, we, uh, many young people, many young people don't believe it can happen to them. And, and you know, g- gangs are convincing. Gangs can, uh, you know, gangs have a lure. And so it's really basically us, you know, fighting for our children. And, um, and, and then some children do fall into the lure of the gangs. But it's very important, so, so important for people to realize that there is help there's, you know, we should never give up that fight. Yeah, what are some of the programs then that you do have in Abbotsford schools or to talk to kids about this? Well, the Abbotsford police um, have, a, have many different types of resources. First of all, we have our gang crime unit who do intervention, prevention, and enforcement. And they're available anytime for a phone call. We have a, we have a line that you can leave your, your name and number at and they'll get back to you, um, which you can find on our website or at 604-864-4777. One of our community law enforcement partners is uh, the, combined force, sorry, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit with BC. And they have a, a gang exiting program as well as different uh, resources on their website at m- nganglife.ca. And you can have brochures and pamphlets and, and videos and different ways of talking to your children. Um, and also to note that Abbotsford has, um, as well as elementary, middle, and high school, our youth officers go into all three of those schools throughout Abbotsford and do uh, presentations on gangs appropriate to that age group. Right. But still, somehow, that message isn't getting through. As you said, is there still just this belief that my child wouldn't do that or my child would know better? Well, there is, you know, there is always going to be difficulties in parenting 
teenagers, some, some so a little bit more challenging than others. Uh, there's always going to be a little bit of kickback from our young people who want to be independent and they know what's going on. And, you know, sometimes apparently parents really don't know what we're talking about at a certain age when a young person is growing up. Um, don't give up. Keep on with that message. Keep on asking for help. You don't have to do this by yourself. Um, very important, you know, if you're frustrated as a parent, to reach out to your community groups, uh, send an email. And, you know, the other thing is, is um, you can report crime anonymously to Crime Stoppers, solvecrime.ca. Um, very important for us to communicate. There is also this belief, you know, embarrassment by families. You know, my child um, can't possibly be doing this. Yeah. Well, let's acknowledge the fact that this may be happening and, and, and start to get a bit of help. Like, there is no book on parenting, right? There's no binder that we're handed out when you go into the hospital. Um, and there's all different ways of approaching parenting. And so very, very important for you to get maybe some parenting skills. There's community services. There's different agencies that give parenting uh, classes. And, and if you believe that your child's involved in crime, there is agencies that are willing to help you and, and do whatever we can to try and uh, persuade the young people to change their lives. Right. But this is just about asking questions, though, right? Like, where are you, you taking track, my car? Where are yes. you going with my car? And, you know, it's it's easy for us to... It's easy to hope that your child's not involved, but if your child is coming home with expensive items, money, cars, jewelry, cell phones, they're acting strangely, they're not sharing, they're closing down, they're uh, retaliating, they're angry, know where they're getting these items from. It is the lure of easy money that keeps on bringing our children into gangs. And it doesn't matter if it was yesterday, today, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's the lure of quick money. Sure is. Sergeant Bird, thanks so much for telling us about it. May I add just one more thing? Yeah, please? sure. Go ahead. Uh, we're, asking, we're asking parents and young people that if you are approached by somebody uh, to be involved with a gang, they pull up beside you and they, wanna, they want to talk to you about being, they want you to work for them, we encourage you to call your local police agency and report this. And again, if you want to remain anonymous, please call Crime Stoppers. All right, Sergeant Bird, thank you. Thank you. That is Sergeant Judy Bird, uh, Abbotsford Police Department, talking about this disturbing trend that they have noticed recently. In fact, they made two arrests on this this week. They said that essentially gangs, drug dealers, are, are getting around the glare of the police on their activities by recruiting uh, new drivers, like essentially drivers with an N on their vehicle. I actually thought it was an April Fool's Day joke. I did a double take when I saw the headline that said, President Donald Trump has been asking aides about buying Greenland. Yes, that is actually the case being reported in numerous U.S. publications like the Wall Street Journal last night. And now there's all this discussion about, well, how much money would it cost to buy Greenland? I saw that story in the Washington Post this morning, and I thought, come on, Greenland can't be very happy about this. And they are not, actually. Government saying, yes, it's happy that the U.S. president has taken an interest, but it is not for sale at this point. Greenland is a semi-autonomous Danish territory. Had to put that statement out there today just to clarify that they're not on the market. So what really is going on here. A Trump ally told the Associated Press yesterday that the president has been discussing this purchase but wasn't really serious about it. However, a Republican congressional aide says the notion has been brought up enough times by the president to make lawmakers who've heard it wonder how serious he actually is. So we wanted to talk more about this. Our next guest is the author of a book called The Greenland Dilemma. And he says that this idea is an absolutely radical break with settled foundations that we've had since World War II. We wanted to talk more about this with him. His name is Martin Bram. Uh, not only has he written The Greenland Dilemma, he's got Cold Rush as well. He's speaking to us from the Faroe Islands today. Martin, thank you for being here. That's a pleasure, Jimmy. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a bit about Greenland, first of all, because I think today people are learning more about this country. Yes, the whole world is learning about Greenland today. Well, it's the world's biggest island. Uh, much of it is covered by ice, but there is uh, about 60,000 people living there, and it's part of the Danish kingdom. Uh, so this move by the President of the United States, uh, to the extent that we know of it, is somewhat of a surprise, I can tell you. 
So what is it? Uh, has it always been under Danish rule? I understand it was a bit of an American protector during the Second World War. Well, that's an exaggeration. No, it's always been part of the Danish kingdom for the last 300 years. Uh, the American troops were certainly uh, using Greenland as a staging post uh, for flights, you know, aircrafts that had to move from America to Britain. They couldn't fly that long uh, at that stage. Uh, so they built airports in Greenland and then they hopped from America to Greenland, to Iceland and then to the UK to fight uh, the German army. Uh, so that was really how um, the American interest in, in, uh, in Greenland grew during the Second World War. And then afterwards, they built Tula Air Base up in the very, very north of Greenland, extremely far up in the, in the north, not very far from the North Pole. Um, and that was a really, really important military base during the Cold War, uh, when the Soviet Union was sort of the big enemy. Um, so today, there's still an important air base up at Tula, an American base in Greenland, but now it's like sort of part of the missile defense of the U.S. So if, say, Russia, China, North Korea uh, should launch a missile, let's hope it's never going to happen, but should it happen, uh, the idea is that the Americans from a very big radar up at the very north of Greenland would be able to detect such a missile before uh, it hits America and, and shoot it down. Right. So Greenland is sort of a buffer between uh, North America and uh, those uh, countries that America often describes as their potential um, foes. So is that, do you think, why the president then has kind of been musing out loud about this? Is it the strategic value of Greenland and what it offers to the United States? Yeah, I believe that. Of course, I don't know uh, exactly what happens in the White House, uh, but my assumption is that security plays a very big role here. Uh, the Americans, the, the Pentagon, the Coast Guard, uh, the White House uh, uh, has issued statements and documents lately where it, it, it's very clear that America is is waking up very rapidly to the rapid changes in the Arctic. You know that as Canadians, but the U.S. has been somewhat uh, behind in analysis and action when it comes to the Arctic. And now they feel that they have to sort of catch up with Russia and China and others whom they think are moving rapidly in the Arctic. Right. Now, how do you think this is going to go over, though, in Greenland? Well, we know already... Uh, I think the, gover the government that nuked the capital of Greenland has responded very, uh, let's say, personally. They're saying, well, uh, we're certainly open for business, but we're not for sale. You see, the, the relationship with America, uh, the Greenlandic relationship with the U.S. is actually quite positive and warm on a daily basis. Um, Greenland opened a, re a diplomatic representation in Washington couple of years back to increase American interest in, in Greenland, uh, business, politics, and so forth. Uh, and the U.S. has just recently announced that they will reopen a diplomatic office in Nuke for the first time in 65 years, I think it is. Uh, so relations are actually quite good, but they're certainly not interested in becoming part of the U.S. Um, they're very close to Denmark. They want their independence and so forth. Um, like Nunavut, and, and it's sort of the same idea. Uh, they, they're very sort of keen on their own autonomy and future independence, but they want to continue to work closely with Denmark. That's my clear impression from all the talks I've had with politicians mm -hmm. in Nuuk uh, over the years. What does it say, though, to a small country like this when one of the world's biggest superpowers is essentially saying, eh, we've got our eye on you? Well, I think, in a sense, one should not exaggerate. Uh, this is a positive statement, you could say, that there's an interest in Greenland. There is an attention from the U.S. to affairs in Greenland. I think that will be welcomed. That's the side the signals that is coming from Nuke today. But when it comes to actual power play or attempts to increase American influence in Greenland, then I think uh, it's becoming controversial uh, and certainly also in Copenhagen, which still has sort of the overall sovereignty over Greenland, defense issues, uh, the royal house and so forth, is still, um, you know, the, the, the name of the game in Greenland. Um, they, uh, the government in Copenhagen, will be very, very um, cautious and, and attentive 
to this American move, not the least because uh, President Trump is expected in Copenhagen on the 1st of September uh, on an official visit. I'm sure it's going to be sort of an issue uh, hmm. from now on until then to find out what exactly is going on here. Is that, you think, then the reason for this? Like, it just doesn't come out of nowhere if he's going to be visiting, uh, you know, and talking to the head of Denmark. All Maybe this could come up. No, I'm sure it will. Um, not this exact uh, thing about buying Greenland that the media are very concerned about today. No, the, the, the whole notion that the U.S. is increasingly becoming an active player in the Arctic, uh, Greenland will be up uh, as, a, as a key item on that agenda. And the Danish government, I'm sure, is following this with intense scrutiny. Uh, as well uh, as the Greenlandic politicians. They will be on top of this from now on until Trump is here and also beyond that. Right. You mentioned how a bigger player in the Arctic then. That also impacts Canada as well, right? Because you're talking about major players now being much more interested in what's going on the farther north you get. Yes, I'm sure your government is following this very closely too. Uh, I mean, there's only 30 kilometers between Greenland and Canada up in the very far north. Uh, so we're very close neighbors in, the, in those quarters. Um, this is certainly something that affects the whole Arctic, including Canada. Yes, you're perfectly right there. Uh, now, when you talk about Greenland, how, how it's a very small in terms of population. Like, what is it, 40,000 people, 50,000 people? Yeah, just about that, 57 uh, at last count, I think. And they're spread on this entire, this gigantic island. It's, it's a very, let's say, a peculiar country. Uh, it works very well. It's a welfare state, you know, with good hospitals and schools and so forth. Um, they're not very wealthy, uh, sort of on an international scale, but they're doing quite well uh, on their own and with uh, financial aid from Denmark. So it's a well-functioning, a small community in the sense that, as you say, there's only 57,000 people there. Uh, but in geographical terms, we're talking a superpower here. It's more than 2 million square kilometers, if that means anything to anybody. Uh, it's a massive piece of land uh, that's sitting there as a buffer between North America uh, and the Arctic Ocean. And on the other side of that, of course, Russia, China, North Korea, etc. And we should remember always when we talk about this, this is the first time in human history where a whole ocean is opening up for human traffic. An ocean that was previously closed uh, to humanity is now opening up. And it's this dynamic uh, that we're looking into through this lens of politics and security now. Um, it's, a, it's a massive event. It doesn't happen overnight, but in the course of, in the course of actually quite a, only quite a few years, uh, this whole region is changing in nature. And that, of course, affects politics and security. Uh, and that is what we're seeing today. Right. So when Greenland was frozen over, there wasn't that much interest in it. But as you're saying now, with climate change, melting ice, opening up of waterways, all of a sudden it's a lot more interesting. Exactly. And they know that in Greenland and they appreciate the interest. As they say, um, we're open for business, but we're not for sale. Oh, we'll be keeping an eye on this one. Martin, thank you so much for that. That was a pleasure, Simi. Have a nice day. It was fascinating. That's Martin Bram. He's written a couple of books on this. One is called The Greenland Dilemma. The other is called Cold Rush. He was speaking to us from the Faroe Islands. Update you now on a story you've been hearing about in the news this morning. There has been a murder in Surrey. A man is in police custody. And this happened at the Semiamu Shopping Centre. This is the one that's at 152nd and 18th Avenue, normally a pretty quiet area there. This happened shortly before 3 a.m. this morning. They found a man suffering from apparent stab wounds. Now, he later died, and police say it does not appear to have been a random act. So the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is now leading the case. And if you're out and about in that area, there is still very much a police presence there. They've got like an area blocked off while they are investigating. Uh, so definitely avoid it if you can. Uh, meanwhile, they just wrapped up a press conference that they had on this topic to update the public. That was Sergeant Frank Chang from IHIT. And here is some of what he had to say. Uh, right now, IHIT has taken conduct of the investigation and we're working with our partners here from the Surrey RCMP Serious Crimes Unit, as well as BC Coroner Service and the Integrated Forensic Identification Services. Uh, now, it's very early in the investigation. In fact, it's just maybe over 
eight hours since we got the initial call. Uh, we are looking for witnesses that were in the area of the 1700 block of 152 Street in the early hours of this morning to please come forward. Um, I can also share with you that um, the identity of our victim, we are still trying to confirm that right now. We haven't confirmed that. Uh, our victim is still at scene. Our forensic specialists and our crime scene manager and the BC coroner service um, are at the scene uh, conducting uh, their examination. And we hope to learn of uh, his identity soon. And of course, to pass on that information to his family. What I can also share with you is that we have one male in custody uh, with respect to this investigation. There is a home near the scene of this incident that um, is surrounded by crime scene tape. I can confirm for you that that residence is uh, associated to our homicide investigation. Um, we would also like to recognize the excellent work of the Integrated Police Dog Services as well as the frontline officers of the Surrey RCMP. Once again, um, uh, their exemplary work was on display earlier this morning. Uh, they responded promptly uh, to the incident, to the area, and they conducted a track which led them to the residence. Uh, right now, we believe that there may be others that were involved uh, in this altercation, uh, and that's why it is so crucial that those with information about what happened, uh, please come forward. You can contact our uh, AHIT uh, info line, or you can do so anonymously through Crime Stoppers. That is Sergeant Frank Jang from IHIT. That's the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team updating everyone in regards to what happened early this morning at the Semiamo Shopping Center. That's at 152nd and 18th Avenue. When we say early, it was shortly before 3 a.m. this morning where RCMP were called and they found a man suffering from apparent stab wounds. He later died and police saying it is... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system not a random act from what they can see and they do have someone in custody but they are looking for more information as you heard from Sergeant Frank Jang there so give them a call uh, if you have any information for them. We closely watch the reports of the statistics when it comes to overdoses in this province now because we are hoping to see some kind of improvement. It's been several years since the overdose crisis was declared a public health crisis in this province meaning that we focused a lot of resources on it. Is, has any of that, though, been making a difference. Well, the latest numbers are out. Let's get into them now with the help of Andy Watson, who is with the BC Coroner Service Communications Office. Andy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Timmy, uh, for having me on and for keeping this uh, issue, obviously, in the public uh, domain. It's so important that we continue to talk about this. Oh, you're so right about that. So what, uh, what time frame do these latest stats cover? So today we released data for illicit drug toxicity deaths and fentanyl detected deaths for the first six months of 2019. And it shows a comparison over the, the course of the last decade in terms of the number of illicit drug toxicity deaths that have occurred in our province. And so I think last year around this time when we were talking, we were dealing with death totals, you know, in the hundreds, um, you know, 120 here, 140 there. And, you know, at some point in time, it just it got to, to the point where it was like, okay, are we going to see a turnaround here? And, you know, we have thankfully seen a decrease, which is encouraging through the first six months of 2019, um, month over month and year over year. Um, all combined, uh, we've seen a reduction by about one third in, in terms of the total number of deaths uh, for the first six months of this year compared to that same time period last year. That said, um, while we've seen the fatality rate decrease, um, I do understand from our partners, uh, you know, folks at the BC Centre for Disease Control, BC Centre on Substance Use, those at the health authorities and on the front lines, that both the number and severity of non-fatal overdoses is not on the decline. So optimism and, and, and encouragement for the fact that the number of tox uh, 
fatal uh, incidents with uh, with overdoses is down, but that the non-fatal number hasn't come down is still obviously a big concern for those in our province. So what does that tell us then, Andy? Does that tell us that we're just we're getting better at saving people who are overdosing? You know, it's a tricky question because we don't answer the why question. We answer the how, where, when, and by what means questions. But I think, you know, if you were to take a look at some of the, you know, some of the literature that is out there, um, I know in June, and, and I know you've covered this in the past in June, the BC Centre for Disease Control uh, released a study that talked about were it not for the interventions and, and actions that have been taken to date, um, you know, the death toll would be between two and a half and three times higher than, than, than what it is. And certainly we do know, I think, too, that that whole discussion that we've had around stigma, I think people realize now that this this isn't just a choice that people are making, that, you know, substance use is is a medical condition. And so we need to treat it as such. And so right. by creating access to supervised consumption sites, overdose prevention sites, uh, creating access to drug checking services, making sure that people know if they have a substance use disorder, they can talk to a healthcare professional about treatments available, expanding access to those treatments. All these steps that have happened, and even the education around the naloxone and carrying a naloxone kit with you and calling 911 if you see someone with an overdose, all these steps, I think, if you were to combine them all, mm-hmm. we, we, we have seen a difference. And again, it's hard to measure that uh, with any sort of level of preciseness, but anecdotally, certainly from our end, um, you know, when we know we're dealing with a toxic drug supply, uh, these efforts are certainly helping. And I mean, you can see our numbers yeah. uh, on the decline. I think, I think it would be very fair and safe to correlate that and, and to see that we are you know, we have turned a corner in terms of the number of people dying. That said, June of 2019, there were still 73 British Columbians who died because of uh, illicit drug right. toxicity deaths. So that's still a number that's far too high. But it also sounds like you can't really let up because it is all of that pressure that is perhaps making the difference in lowering these numbers. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have a role to play here in making sure that the data we provide is being provided in a timely fashion. So those on the front lines are able to go out and, and, and make informed decisions about where resources need to go. And, and, and in terms of the deeper dive that we do into our data, you know, as we look at these multi-page protocols, collecting that information and sharing it with partners is so important. You know, a lot of these deaths continue to be preventable too. You know, we mm-hmm. know the drug supply is toxic and we all talk about that. But the fact that people continue to use alone, we still have some work obviously to do around that. Nine in 10 deaths are occurring indoors. Uh, we know that people that are dying, males are overrepresented in the data. Fentanyl's detected in four in every five deaths. So we know that there's still work to be done around the stigma piece. Um, I was going to ask it, you about it, fentanyl it, it, there, as you mentioned there too. Yeah. So fentanyl clearly still a huge issue. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the one thing that maybe, you know, we had that big blip um, at the beginning of the year, the first four months of the year where we saw, saw car fentanyl just surge up in terms of the number of deaths where we were detecting that. And that has leveled out a little bit. Um, we, we peaked in March at 32 deaths um, out of the approximately 100 that had been reported uh, that month that had contained carfentanil. And for those that don't know, carfentanil is about 100 times more potent than fentanyl used as an elephant tranquilizer. It, it's extremely dangerous uh, for, for, for human consumption. Mm-hmm. So and and very hard to 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 filter out of your uh, out of your supply. And so, you know, we were quite concerned about that in the first four months, where we saw massive increases. But in May, uh, 13 deaths with carfentanil detected, and and so far for June, just four. So hopefully, uh, there's been some good efforts in, in in terms of trying to get that out of the supply. Um, but we know the drug checking services; they've they've played a very important role in terms of helping right. people to be able to understand what it is they're taking. And uh, we'll continue to do the work that we need to do. Uh, but again, knowing that the, the severity and number of non-fatal overdoses is not on the decline, uh, it just underlines that urgency that we need to continue to have to reduce overdose events um, and obviously prevent poor outcomes and, and also the long-term right. disability in those people that are surviving. Andy, what about the, the people who were, the stats had shown that most of these deaths are happening kind of in private homes, right? People overdosing by themselves. Has there been any change in those numbers? 
Not from what we've seen. And, and again, I think we'll need to do another deeper dive at some point in time into this data to really better understand, you know, looking a little bit more granularly as, as to whether or not the, the literature and any of the discussion that's been out there has helped. But we do know that about with nine in every 10 deaths occurring indoors, we know that people are still using alone. We know that people are, are using, they just looking at some of the anecdotal things we see, you know, mm-hmm. somebody in their bathroom who's, who's, who's died using alone without anyone even aware that they were using a substance or, you know, somebody, uh, you know, uh, you know, being uh, in the living room when no one else is home and, and dying using alone. Again, we urge people, if you are using substances and you may be using for a variety of reasons, you may be in pain, uh, you may be down on your luck, you may you may have a dependency issue, please go talk to your healthcare provider about your disorder. They have treatments available to help you. And, and I mean, better yet, if you are going to use substances, access one of those supervised consumption mm-hmm. sites or overdose prevention sites because we know that they're working. Not a single death reported either of those types of locations. An important note. Andy, thank you so much for your time on this. Simi, thanks again for the uh, coverage and and the ongoing support to talk about this issue. Always. It's so important. That's Andy Watson from the BC Coroner Service Communications Office talking about their latest numbers. And there are some promising things in those numbers. About 20 minutes ago, right here, you heard Bruce Allen's reality check, as you do every day, several times a day here on the station. And you've been hearing that for years. Whether you love it or you hate it, sometimes maybe at the same time, depends on what day of the week it is, uh, his voice, I think, has become absolutely essential to our station. And we thought it well worth, with our 75th anniversary this week, to spend a little more time to let you get to know Bruce Allen. So we thought, all right, let's do this. We sent Nikki Reitmeyer on a trip to Bruce's office for a meeting with the legendary and always entertaining Bruce Allen. I'm Bruce Allen, this is CKNW, and this is a reality check. Horgan is starting to sound and look like Donald Trump light. If his lips are moving, he must either be lying or babbling on in some nonsensical non sequiturs. What a solution. The father of confederation exiled the purgatory without even getting a chance to defend himself. Rico was charged with possession of retinal for the purpose of driving. That's just the way it is. I'm Bruce Allen, this is CKNW, and this is your reality check. Bruce Allen. For decades, you've heard him in one form or another on CKNW. We've done 3,000 reality checks. He's a music manager by day and by night. He created his radio reputation with the late night show Sound Off on Fox, which began in the late 80s. Now, here's your host with a big attitude, Bruce Allen. Since the early 2000s, he's been sounding off on NW with his dynamic, sharp, controversial, but always entertaining opinions. There are rules. You expect us listen, to pay these. Listen, we have to play by the rules and you don't listen. Oh, God. Bruce, I swear if my arm was longer, I could go over there and <laughs> slap you. I went to visit Bruce in his downtown office. Just imagine walking into an office space with a huge Elvis portrait on the wall. That's the first thing you see. Then music memorabilia absolutely everywhere. Framed records hanging on the walls from floor to ceiling. And of course, a display case full of music awards. Bruce is sitting behind a big desk covered in paperwork got a big personality, but you're also an extremely busy guy five days a week to be calling in and doing reports with NW. I mean, what inspires you to keep wanting to do that? I really don't know, but I tell you what, it becomes part of your life. It becomes like exercising. Okay. Um, I think it's good for my mind. I mean, I can sit here. I got a lot of work to do there. That's right. But I mean, it's work that I've been doing for 40 years. So I can, I can, I really like kind of Okay, so note here that Bruce's phone, which is sitting on his desk, is continuing to ding and ding and ding. So in true Bruce Allen fashion, what does he do? Picks it up and throws it across the room. I have to go, you know, and let me throw this. You know, like, I really like to sit there and have that discipline. And it is a discipline. I mean, anybody who works at kind of a continuous job like that, it's a discipline to do it. So I I don't mind doing it. And if I don't do it, I think it, it, uh, I get rattled. And all the time though, you know what's funny about it is that all the time you're thinking of something. 
you and I will have a conversation just about something and I'll get something out of that conversation that I can build a couple minutes out of, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's, just, it's just habit now. Well, it's brilliant. I'm glad that you're still doing it. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your more famous combative episodes. I don't like people who have a problem every time playing the race card. I hate it. It's so easy. It's so easy because all you people run from it. No, I'm not running from it, Bruce Allen. I've got you on the air because I disagree with you, and I believe in your right to say what you want on the air on CKNW. And I think that's what makes an interesting society. Wouldn't we live in a boring place if we didn't have people like Bruce Allen saying what they want to say on the air? I agree with you on that. Now, I disagree with your views, Bruce Allen, and some of the other people who disagree. I mean, I don't think you should be fired from CKNW, but lots of other people think you should be. Why, what dis, what point do you disagree? What point do you disagree with me what I said? I, I disagree with you when you say we don't need them here. I totally disagree with you on that because we, we need do need immigrants here if in this you're country. Not gonna, hey, listen. And when you say people have to fit in, I say why can't our laws be flexible? Why can't we change to meet the reality, the immigrants, changing reality of this country? Why does everybody have to act like a European when they come to Canada, Bruce Allen? Just because you're an old white immigrant, guy immigrant, doesn't mean they have to meet your standard. Hey, Christy and Bruce. I just want to say thank you for standing up and telling it like it is. Why do you think that is, that people just sit back and take it? I have no idea. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right why it isn't. Because you then would have to sit across from Christy Clark glaring at you. Oh, she called you some ignorant, um, no, no, no. ignorant, I said, I belligerent. Said views were belligerent. Okay, and I, I didn't st- say you were ignorant. And, and, two, and two cameras here sitting on there making a news show, people calling for your jobs. That's why you don't say it. And that's what Canadians do. They don't say it. Here we go on the wall. I turn around behind me. I see a (laughs) Vancouver Sun cover of the Vancouver Sun posted on your wall and frame that says, Alan won't apologize for too harsh words. Let's talk about that controversy first of all. (laughs) Well, that was a controversy about, um, it started with the helmets, helmet law and motorcycles. And the uh, East Indian or South East Asians thought if they had a turban, they didn't have to wear a a helmet. And uh, it blew up from there. As I said, like, if you don't like it, leave. And (laughs) I had to, um, it's not so much as make an apology, but we had to go over to uh, Fraser Street in that area and met with all those people. And we had an interesting discussion. And uh, I was back in the air after a while. But you know, it's just, it's just was something that I said, that was, I mean, I could go on about it and tell you a lot of stuff that I don't want to actually go there. Because you end up a bit like Donald Trump. You say stuff like that, there's always somebody who agrees with you. And, and that's not healthy either. So it was a moment in time. I put it there just so I can remember, you know, not to say that stuff. And also, I'm lucky because Jeff Aldis, my producer, if he knows that it's getting on the edge there, he runs it by legal. And uh, I get the call, you know, from one of your bosses and says, okay, we had to take out this. Can you change that? <laughs> so, you know, but, it, but it's, try, it's supposed to be controversial. I'm trying to make you think at the same time, okay? I'm trying to say what you want to say, but I'll say it, okay? And somebody says, how do you get away with that? I said, well, I'm not in retail. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to walk around a block of my store screaming. So I, I, I think I can take a little bit of license with it. The name Bruce Allen and Angry Rant are almost synonymous to CKNW listeners. Mm-hmm. But you're a nice guy. There's got to be a soft side to Bruce Allen, too. Or are you truly always that angry guy that's ranting and raving, even in your private personal life? I don't think you could be, okay? People would get tired of it, and I'd get tired of it. I'm in the entertainment business. You want to be entertaining, you just can't be bland. It's easy to be beige, Nikki. It's easy, okay? You're not going to offend anybody being beige. But I'd rather be a little bit more black or white on some of these topics. <laughs> But there is a soft side to Bruce too, right? Yeah, I, th- I think I, I think so. I think uh, I mean I've had friends for years and years. I've had a staff out here for been here for decades, so there must be something working. And you know, like my artists, I think we've done real well with them. And I've been with them a long time. I mean, you take a guy like Brian Adams, I've been with him, been with him since he was seventeen, eighteen. Now he's sixty. Okay, if I was really that big an a hole, he'd have left long ago. But they, they're funny, too, because Michael Bublé tells me when I used to, some of the things I say on the radio before we started managing, before I started managing him, he said, I'd be banging my head, my banging my fist on the steering wheel, say, you're such an asshole. God, I can't stand you. And he'd be, he'd be yelling. He said, I can remember this driving down from Whistler or something when I was doing those things in the middle of the night, banging on the steering wheel, pissed off. How can you speak like that? <laughs> but anyway, that's good. It, it's, it's, it, is, it is actually it's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be. Whether he was fighting with Christy Clark, making the front page of the Vancouver Sun, or sparring with Vancouver's former Mayor Moonbeam, Mayor Gregor Robertson, that is. Uh, you got the nickname 
Mayor Moonbeam. I think this guy actually gave you that nickname. Bike lanes, too many of them. Didn't listen to the merchants, didn't listen to the motorists, listen to the fringe groups like Hub. <laughs> uh, so are you a fan of Bruce Allen? Do you listen to his reality check? I think you've starred in it many, many times. Oh, yeah, yeah, from time to time. I, you know, I'm pretty busy with uh, with doing the real work versus too listening busy to, to, listen to Bruce listen Allen's to Bruce reality Allen ranting. check. Yeah. Well, we understand that you decided to uh, give a little jab back to Mr. Allen. You yeah. did your own reality check? Yes, I did. All right, well, let's listen. This is Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson on CKNW, and this is your reality check. I've been mayor for almost 10 years, and during that time, I've had all kinds of things said about me in the media. But during these 10 years, I've had to put up with one clown who has spent every week trashing me and who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That person? Bruce Allen. But, you know... It doesn't matter what they're saying about you as long as they're saying something. You are the living embodiment of there's no such thing as bad publicity. (laughs) That's exactly right. I agree with that, too. Any publicity is good publicity, you know. So that's, uh, and I'm I'm really fortunate to have that forum that I have. Really, really fortunate. A lot of people can't say any of those things, okay? And and a lot of that is dinner table conversation. It shouldn't go any further than that. I think think it's important to people at least they hear somebody saying it, you know? And and that's why I get all these things to run for mayor and run for mayor. I'm too old to run for mayor now. But you know what? I'd have been a pretty good mayor in my 50s. So cheers to Bruce Allen for being the voice of things we may think but don't say. And cheers to Bruce Allen for being that voice for more than three decades on Vancouver Radio. Oh, that was awesome. That was our Nikki Reitmeyer paying Bruce Allen a little visit at his office to help celebrate CKNW's 75th anniversary this week. We've had the dialogue Learn from Jeff, uh, Greg, and, and ownership of the desire to, to go the, the sporting director route and um, the, the impact that that would have on me. And I'm ecstatic. I'm excited about the fact that uh, we're making this kind of investment. Well, you know, when you're sitting in last place in the Western Conference of Major League Soccer, pretty sure that at some point something has to give. And today that did for the Vancouver Whitecaps. They announced a front office shakeup, and it is a pretty big one because for a long time, years and years, Bob Leonarduzzi has been the face and everything of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Well, they are doing away with the position of president That was Bob Leonarduzzi's job, but he himself is not leaving uh, the club. He is actually moving into a new role as club liaison, but they're going to start this international search uh, to hire a sporting director. So let's break all of this down. What does this mean? Global BC Sports Director joins us now, Squire Barnes. Hi, Squire. Hello. Is this a huge surprise? No. That's what I thought. I don't think so. Um, This actually was sort of rumored um, last year that they would be looking for someone and Bob might be moved aside. So the announcement today, I, I think there was a lot of pressure on the Whitecaps with the way things have gone so poorly this year on the field that, okay, now we're going to basically throw something out the window to the angry villagers so they might buy <laughs> tickets next year. Is it that bad? Well, I mean, there's a lot more empty seats at BC Place for Whitecaps games than I've seen in the last number of years, maybe since they joined MLS. I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to rush out and buy tickets because Bob's no longer the president. Bob, just to say one thing about Bob, he has been the face of soccer mm-hmm. in this town for more than a generation. Since he joined the Whitecaps as a teenager when they started in 1974, he's always been there with whatever soccer team is in this city. And he's done a lot of good for soccer. And he was an iconic figure for a long time. No one ever criticized Bob. But in recent years, with the Whitecaps not spending enough money on players and whether they say that's true or not, they, they like to defend themselves on that. That's the perception out there. Bob became, went from iconic figure to the face of the franchise, and he was the one everybody directed their frustrations at. Right. And they also haven't had a very good time of it this year off the field either, have they? No, um, because of what happened way back in 2008. Um, with the coach then and with the women's team, that was brought up again last year and the Whitecaps 
got a lot of criticism for that, and Bob got a lot of criticism for that because he was around in 2008, although the Whitecaps are saying today ownership is that that has nothing to do with Bob being moved to whatever that role is, liaison. Yeah, then let's talk about that then. What does that mean, club liaison? Like ambassador, show up, cut some ribbons? I guess so. What is that? Yeah, you, you go to the rubber chicken dinners, you get a desk with a pad so you can doodle on it and <laughs> don't answer the phone. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> really don't know what that's supposed to be. It's like you be the, the – I mean, he would be the ambassador and the liaison. Right. This, as we said, when you think of soccer in Vancouver – you think of Bob Leonard Doozy, and it's always been that way. So the other thing, too, Simi, is Bob has been a very good soldier for the main owner whom you never see, Greg Kerfoot. I mean, Kerfoot Yeah, he wasn't there in. today either, was he? He's never anywhere. You never see him. He's never spoken in public. He doesn't have his photo anywhere. He likes to stay in the shadows, very much so. Um, and Bob has been basically his voice. So I I think also the reason Bob is staying on is a thank you, probably from Greg Kerfoot, to being that guy, to being the guy who stood in front of Greg and and kept him where he wanted to be, and that's out of the public eye. All right, so is this going to be enough? Like, what does this mean? Where do you now find uh, an international sporting director? What does that mean? (laughs) That's a good question, (laughs) because when I was watching the start of the press conference and one of the other owners, Jeff Mallet, is going on about... We've decided to get a sporting director to run this thing. It's like, what? You just figured that out yeah, now? That's what I was We should have too. a guy run the place? You know, the Whitecaps, so one thing about the Whitecaps, they've kind of been a three-headed monster as far as management is concerned. And there was always talk that it was a case of too many cooks at the top of the uh, pyramid. Okay, so now they get a guy or a woman, whomever it is, to run the whole thing. But... I don't know really what that means because if the ownership of the Whitecaps, if the person running it, if you and I or whoever got the job and you went to them and said, I really want this player, he wants to play here, but he's going to cost this much money, and they say no, well, then you're kind of in the same boat as Leonard Doozy and the coaches were and everybody else was before. Yeah, so they haven't actually said that. They haven't said we're going to do whatever it takes. No. We're just going to hire the sporting director. Yeah. I mean, you know, they want, they, they said even last year after they sold Alfonso Davies and got all that money from Bayern Munich in Germany that we really want to develop. We want to get into developing young players and then they make the team and then I guess they sell them to somebody. <laughs> but, um, so uh, this new quote unquote sporting director would be in charge of everything player, I suspect. But again, wasn't that the president's yeah. job? I don't, I, I, it it confuses me uh, that they just figured this out now that they should have somebody run the thing. Yeah, I know that kind of confuses me as well. And you know, really for fans, this summer Squire has been terrible. I mean, there's not a lot for us to watch, <laughs> is there? No, there's not. I mean, thank goodness Wayne Rooney's in town, so you can watch him tomorrow uh, at BC Place. That gives you something to watch if you go to a Whitecaps game. No, the Whitecaps have been awful, and the Lions have been awful, and the Whitecaps. I know they were in a rebuild, and new coach Mark DeSantos didn't have a lot of time to bring in new players, but nobody predicted they would be this confused this late in the season. And with the BC Lions, it's the same thing. They made all these changes. They brought in a new coach. Uh, They brought in Mike Riley, the big star quarterback, and it has been an unmitigated disaster pretty much from the start of the season. And from from the Lions' standpoint, it's even worse than the Whitecaps because when you go to a Whitecaps game, Simi, you do see empty seats now, which right. you didn't see as much before. The Lions have even more empty seats Ooh. than the Whitecaps. And, and now they have, I think, six home games left in the regular season. Ooh. They're awful. Um, not a lot of people want to go out there and watch them anymore. And there's talk about, is a team for sale? And now, what could David Braley get for it? I don't know, a oh couple boy. hundred bucks. It's it's not worth very much <laughs> no. anymore because no one's going and they're not winning. So what, do we have to just sit here and wait for hockey season to start? Or is that, that's, yeah, because that that's team's gonna definitely go so well. that's gonna a Stanley <laughs> Cup contender. Well, you know what? Let, let's face it. In this town, and it's always been this way, whether the Canucks go 0-82 or if they make the Stanley Cup final, it is the Vancouver Canucks town. It always True. has been, and it always will be. I mean, the Lions, you know, when they're doing great, people are more interested. Obviously, when the Whitecaps are doing great, if they ever do great, people are more interested. 
but this is still the Vancouver Canucks town. They're the ones who people talk about 365 days a year. See, but I still felt like last summer and the summer before, the tide had turned a bit. Like, at least in the summertime, I felt like it was it had become the Whitecaps town. You know, it was fun to go to the games. People would talk about that. Nobody has really said that this year. No, you're right. I, I think it, for a while there with the Whitecaps, it was a bit of a novelty. It, it was a great mm. family atmosphere. You know, the other thing about the Whitecaps is half the fun was what was happening in the stands. Yeah. With the supporters groups like the Southsiders and the Curva Collective, I mean, that was kind of fun to get involved with that. But uh, after a while, the novelty begins to wear off a little bit. And now it is, hey, can you win a few games? Can you, we we want to cheer on a winning team too. It's not just enough to come out here and feel like it's fun that we sing and wave flags. We have to see something on the pitch. So the Whitecaps have now fallen into the the situation where people are angry at them. Now, on the flip side of that, Simi, I would say that's a good thing. If no one cares, well, think of it this way. If no one gives a damn if you lose, then you're in real trouble because no one one cares, no one's coming. I think it's better if people are angry because at least it shows they care and if you start to turn things around and win, the angry people become happy and they come to the games. If they are absolutely not interested or they don't care they aren't coming to the games whether you win or lose true good point So with the white caps people were angry a lot of people wanted a change at the top and maybe this change at the top will change some people's minds and they'll think okay well they listen to us and and we'll see how they go from here but i think if the white caps win that stadium sells out again if the lions start winning i'm sad to say i'm not so sure that stadium sells out well, at least that sounds like positive news for the Whitecaps there. Anyway, listen, Squire, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Okay. That is Squire Barnes, our Global BC Sports Director, talking about the news of the Vancouver Whitecaps. I thought that was an absolutely accurate assessment on that. The Whitecaps should take some heart and at least how passionately people seem to care about what they're doing today because that means that, yeah, we want them to win. Start win a couple of games, 